Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and we have a new episode for you this week, but one uh, that is very special. Uh, We have a special guest on the mic today with me, and uh, we've got some very interesting topics to discuss. Uh, Of course, this will be from the Lutheran theological background, so uh, I think it will be helpful and educational and entertaining for you to tune in for the next uh, hour or so of this show. I'm very excited to have this guest. Uh, I'm going to let him go ahead and introduce himself, and uh, I'll let him take away. Yeah, hey Alex, this is Chad Bird. I'm a scholar residence at at 1517. Uh, 1517, for those who might not be familiar with it, is a, a nonprofit Christian organization that produces uh, biblical and and theological and apologetic materials for for the church podcasts videos books uh conferences and whatnot if you're interested you can check out 1517.org which is the hub of everything that we do so i'm uh my background is primarily in in old testament studies uh i was a i was an old testament prof for a while uh, taught hebrew did some Graduate work at Hebrew Union College, where I also became interested in some of the intertestamental, intertestamental literature and, and early Jewish biblical interpretation. What I've been doing for the last several years is a lot of work in Christ in the Old Testament, and especially then how Christ in the Old Testament informs how we read the Gospels. So I put out a, a weekly video called Reading the Gospels Through Hebrew Eyes, in which I kind I, I I take these twin interests of mine, Christ in the Old Testament, and then the uh, the Hebrew background of the Gospels, and pull those together in a way that that hopefully is helpful for uh, for pastors as well as for those who are simply interested in in Bible study. So that's a, a bit of my background and uh, and and what I do, and looking forward to the conversation about those topics today. Yeah, absolutely, and you know it, it's. Uh, interesting for me because uh, I, I've been following 1517 now for uh, probably a year or so and been really blessed with the material that 
the organization by whole produces, whether it's from the podcast platforms to, you know, the daily uh, articles that get my email to your videos. And, you know, from a pastoral standpoint, uh, one of the things I've noticed when I preach, uh, the more I take the time to explain the text and why some of the elements are the way they are, especially turning back to the Old Testament and drawing out some things that most people would seem to uh, overlook, uh, you know, that has been your approach. And I find the people in my congregation seem to really like that structure of a sermon um, because they want to know, you know, all those threads being interconnected, if you would. And so you, you wrote a book. I'm going to start with the book um, before we get into some of the other aspects of what you do. And the book is called The Christ Key. So uh, if you would, Chad, just please briefly explain or or we can dig into some of the deep depths of this book. Uh, but I really, this was a, an absolutely fantastic read for me. So I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I guess we could we could use the title itself. And then the subtitle is kind of a, a jumping off point for talking about what the book is is concerned with. So the Christ key, and then the subtitle is Unlocking the Centrality of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, so I use I work with this image of the Old Testament as kind of a an old mansion with all of these these locked rooms. And some some are small, just kind of a coat closet. Some are vast, um, some are kind of mid-sized. And that represents, as it were, the all the biblical books in the Old Testament canon. But each of these rooms is is locked. Uh, but there is a key, and the key not only gets us into those rooms, but uh, when we walk in there, we find that the key himself is, as it were, the, the fullness of those rooms. So Christ is the key that opens all these doors, whether it's Genesis or whether it's the book of Psalms or whether it's uh, a small book like Habakkuk. Christ is the key that opens our understanding to what these books are all about. And then as we walk into these rooms, we see that he is the one who, in a multitude of different ways, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, is the one who is the, the fullness of these rooms. And of course, for any reader of, of the Gospels or, or Acts or Paul's writings, uh, you're familiar with the fact that Jesus himself, for instance, says that everything written about him in the Torah the law of Moses, the first five books and the prophets and the Psalms that, that all of these books are about him and that he has fulfilled them in some of his Pentecost, some of his acts sermons, sermons in the book of acts, Peter will talk about how all the prophets spoke of the days of the Messiah. He uses that, that phrase three different times. And of course, Paul will say basically the same thing that all God's promises are yes, yes in Christ. So the new Testament itself bears witness to the, the, that Christ is the fullness and the fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures. So what I do in the book is I take various approaches to understanding Christ in the Old Testament and just unpack those. So for instance, we will look at how Christ is actually appearing in the Old Testament in as the messenger of the Lord or the word of the Lord or the, the wisdom of God. We look at themes such as exile themes or the exodus themes as well as creational themes and see how christ is the one who initiates a, a worldwide exodus he's the one who brings about a a new creation and we spend some time also in the book talking about how 
the tabernacle and the temple as a totality, as well as in its individual parts, like the altar or the veil or the mercy seat, that all of these also are a, a prefigurement of the person and the work of Christ, which, of course, is one of the things that the New Testament book of, of Hebrews is, is all about. So I, I do try and take the, the various approaches that, that I find the Old Testament itself taking to talk about Christ and just hone in on those and try to provide as, as much of, a, of an explanation as I can for how Christians, in reading the Old Testament, can read it as a Christian. So we're not, we're not reading Jewish literature, <laughs> as it mm-hmm. were. Mm-hmm. we're. We're reading literature, biblical literature, inspired literature, that is, that is Christian literature, uh, that, is, that is ours. And of course, that's the way that the church has always treated Genesis and Malachi that this is, in fact, the testimony of Jesus. Right. And that, you know, I think that's uh, a really instrumental, especially in today's culture. And and I say that because a thought that came to me right before you started digging into kind of the overlay of the book was how there's some preachers that want to do one of two things. They either want to distance or disconnect the Old Testament because they think it's irrelevant and it has no no say in today's culture, uh, or those that would just cite, you know, play lightly to it and oh yeah, you know, this happened, but we don't care about that now. It's you know that was only for Israel. It has no play on you as a Christian today. And one of the things that I've started to notice for myself personally, especially listening to your videos and and some other writings and that, is just how frequent Christ shows up in the Old Testament. And we, we we see that right in creation. We see that in the fall. We see that throughout Genesis and into Exodus and thereon. And and I would ask you this question, is it safe to say that anytime we see God speaking or any sort of presence of God, like when he re- wrestles with Jacob or the burning bush, that this would be the pre-incarnation of Christ? Yeah, that's the way that I read uh, almost all of those those particular stories. Anytime there's some sort of um, manifestation of God, whether that is the glory cloud or the quote unquote man who wrestles with Jacob, the the burning bush, all of those, it's usually translated angel of the Lord. It's more properly translated messenger of the Lord. All of those occurrences, I understand to be the the son of God who is always close to his people. And I think that is one of the points of, of those manifestations that, that Jesus did not, of course, as it were, wait until Matthew chapter one to visit his people. He likes to be among his people. He's always been visiting his people. I would argue, in fact, that in, in Genesis three, that the Lord God who is walking in the garden in the cool of the day is none other than the second person of the Trinity who is walking there with, uh, as he ordinarily would have walking with his, with his children. Um, so yeah, it, when you, when you begin to read it, the old Testament through that lens, as you said, it's, it's surprising and to some extent, even shocking just how many times he manifests himself in this myriad of ways to his people, all of which is really readying Israel as well as readying us who celebrate his incarnation for that for that birth for him actually to not only come down in a temporary form as it did in the old testament but to come down and as john says for 
him to become flesh and to dwell among us. So I, you know, I, I'm just, that just, uh, is profound to me. I, and, you know, like I said, I, I see these connections and I see it in creation, but to really go even deeper and say that, you know, God walking in the cool of the garden, uh, searching out Adam, that is a pre-incarnation of Christ. I mean, that to me just is like, I, again, it just comes back to this, like, we, we feel like we have, um, uh, so much to, to to gain from the Old Testament, and and I think uh, many churches often uh, will just use the old you know, like if we're on a liturgical calendar, they use the Old Testament reading, and that's the only time the Old Testament is ever mentioned. And and so what I've been doing since uh, November of last year, well, actually earlier than that, has been going through uh, the Old Testament from kind of like a Sunday school Bible stories series. And we're, we hit on all the big topics, creation, the fall, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and so on and so forth. And right now we're working through the book of Exodus, and we're touching base on Moses and how often Moses will now interact with Christ. And, you know, I, I think it, it helps us to show the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because we can't truncate these, right? We, the, these are not two separate pieces in Christian literature. Yeah, I, uh, I'll, I often say this only half jokingly that there <laughs> is one page of the Bible that I would like to rip out. And that is the, uh, the blank page between the <laughs> old and new Testament mm -hmm. because th there is, uh, and so I say that half jokingly, but I do say quite seriously that, uh, there is embedded in the church, this idea that you're really dealing with uh, two separate scriptures as it were. Mm -hmm. You'll even hear people talk about, well, we're New Testament Christians, mm -hmm. as if that's even a possibility. Right. Uh, what What did you do? That What did Christians do, therefore, before there was a New Testament uh, in those first few decades of the, mm -hmm. of the church's history? So we're uh, we're biblical Christians. We're not Old Testament Christians. We're not New Testament Christians. We're biblical Christians. And it, it really is one continuous story, that one continuous story of salvation that begins with Genesis 1 and creation, and then, of course, wraps up with a... Uh, a very Genesis-like ending in those last two chapters of, of Revelation, where once more you have God among his people, you have everything the way he intends it to be, and you have a new Eden, you have a new creation in that Jerusalem that comes down comes down from heaven. So uh, I, I commend what you're doing uh, uh, wholeheartedly. I wish that more and more churches would spend more and more time in the Old Testament. It is, a, it is the part of the, the Bible that I think for the vast majority of people who go to church and maybe even maybe they attend Bible Bible studies. They just are not as as familiar with it. So the more that we immerse ourselves in these stories, uh, the the better actually we're going to understand our own history and the better we'll be able to understand also the life of Jesus, which is really not understandable apart from knowing the scriptures which describe for us beforehand who he is and, and what he is, what he is to accomplish. And yeah, and you know, it was kind of, um, it was kind of just off of the limb because we were trying to decide last year what we wanted to, to preach on and you know, I'm talking with my council and, um, trying to, you know, do we want to, you know, go, cause we've done a couple of new Testament books last year and, you know, do we want to keep that rhythm or do we want to do something that's a little bit more broad in its scope and the, 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 the thought came to me from a friend of mine and 
I was like, boy, that's a great idea. We'll we'll look at the you know the the popular Bible stories that we heard about during Sunday school time as kids, and most of us probably as adults have forgotten these, and and so we we I, you know we went right to Genesis and we started with that, and you know I think early on I wish I would have spent more deliberate time drawing out the connections of Christ being present, but I can see that in my latter sermons. Uh, in Genesis, especially, you know, once Abraham picks up, uh, really starting to show that there is these promises, these connections to scripture. And, you know, we're, uh, for the confirmants that I'm working with right now, um, I am, uh, taking them through kind of the gospel of John and I am, we're, we're watching a video right now. And we'd just gotten past the the portion in John chapter eight, uh, where Jesus says that if you believe the words of Moses, then you would believe me, but you don't believe Moses. And I think that just goes back to exactly what you were saying, that how can we as Christians read the Torah and read the prophets and read wisdom literature and not connect that to being Christ? I, I just, it, it, it is a, an astonishing feat of just, in my opinion, how much uh, Christians, at least today, have been told not to worry about the Old Testament. Don't, don't, you don't need to read it. You don't need to know it. I, I think we do a disservice, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely do. And I mean, when we just stop to think about it, 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 it's completely irrational too. So the examples I like to use are, uh, say, say there's a, a series. Uh, on uh netflix or you know whatever somebody's watching mm-hmm. and it's multiple seasons well if say you have a friend who knows nothing about this and it's going to be the last three episodes of this say five season series and you you invite your friend over the last watch those last two or three episodes well your friend is gonna be completely lost they have no idea what's going on they don't know the characters they don't know the plot they don't know the subplots they don't know the tension they don't know everything that has been building up to these last three episodes and so they're going to miss about 95 percent of what is happening there that's what happens when we read the new testament apart from the old testament we don't know the characters we don't know the plot we don't know the subplots we don't know all the tension all the themes that have been building from genesis 1 onward so to expect to jump into matthew 1 and to really understand the story it's it's an impossibility or you know say there's a, a great a great novel uh, mm-hmm. Les Miserables or whatever it is, you can't you can't read the last couple of chapters and expect to appreciate and understand the story because you're mm-hmm. jumping in too late. The Bible's right. exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the more that we the more that we know everything that leads up to Matthew one, the the better we're going to be able to jump right into the story. We uh, Matthew Matthew one's a great great example of this. How does Matthew begin his gospel with a it's kind of a it's kind of a crazy beginning when you think about it. It's a genealogy. It, mm-hmm. None of us today would say, you know what? I'm going to write this uh, fantastic book. I'm going to start out with a genealogy. Because <laughs> why is that? Because we don't think like the Hebrews. We don't think in Old Testament terms. Now, for if you really know the Old Testament, when you read Matthew one and you come across this genealogy, everything you're going to have light shining all over the place it's like oh i see this mm-hmm. genealogy is basically a retelling of the entire old testament story by means of these selected individuals all of which of course lead us to lead us to the messiah so yeah i mean the church has always struggled with this 
this what to do with the Old Testament or aspects of the Old Testament. It was it was the first controversy in the church. You go to Acts. What was what did they have the first council about? Basically, it revolved around issues related to the Old Testament. Do these uh, Jew Gentile converts to the faith? Do the do the men need to be circumcised? And do the people need to obey the dietary laws? All that, of course, is Old Testament stuff. It it continued into the second century when you got the guy named Marcion, who was a, a heretic, who's basically wanted to to scrap the Old Testament completely and then to take the New Testament and to excise from it every reference to the Old Testament. So you mm -hmm. have that extreme going on. And then today we're just we're faced with just other other kinds of struggles with what to do with it. You know, some people want to moralize it. Some people just want to treat it as kind of a, a vast literary museum that you visit. That's interesting for sure. And you learn a few things, but it, it's not life changing or anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of other other ways that the Old Testament is mistreated. But for me, the only way to read it is to read it from the perspective of the one who is the, the, the fulfillment of it. Christ himself tells us, hey, like, like he quoted earlier from John, Moses wrote of Christ. Christ says, the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms are about me. So uh, it, it's uh, honestly, it's baffling to me how, how Christians don't read the Old Testament from that particular perspective, since that is the perspective that Christ himself has given to us. Mm -hmm. So would you, uh, let, let, let's kind of dig into the Old Testament just a little bit. Um, so we have different types of literary uses that we find. We have history, we have wisdom, we have poetry, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, even apocalyptic literature we find throughout the Old Testament. Um, how would we get into, especially like, let's focus on the Torah, for instance, uh, because there's, I think, a couple camps of Christians that would come out of this that, uh, and actually somebody had sent me a video uh, the other day about a gentleman who calls himself a Torah Christian. And I am kind of was like, you know, the, the way he kind of set it up was that you can't be a true Christ follower if you don't obey the Torah completely. You know, like the old, and that's going into understanding you know all the levitical law that is placed out and i guess my question for you would be how can we uh, as christians today read recognize and understand the context and purpose behind some of those laws yeah that is uh that that particular kind of approach uh the the torah christian approach is something that uh, that i encounter Quite frequently, more frequently than I than I wish I would, <laughs> and it's um, I, I always give the kind of the basic response of well, read Galatians because Paul, the people that Paul was having to deal with in Galatia, the ones who had come in and corrupted the gospel, the Judaizers, mm -hmm. that is nothing more than what we're encountering today, when we when we find Christians who basically want to say to us, okay, you, you follow Christ to be sure, but you also need to follow Moses. You also need to follow these Levitical laws. You need to be a Torah Christian. Well, that is just it's nothing more than a modern day Judaizer against which Paul railed in the in the book of Galatians. So how do we as those people who are part of the new covenant, how do we read the Torah and especially all of these all of these laws? Well, the laws themselves, uh, at least most of those in the Torah are part of the old covenant. 
even the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. the Ten Words, are part of the part of the Old Covenant, um, including the the Sabbath day. And the Old Covenant is exactly what Christ fulfilled. Those are the laws that he that he kept perfectly. And so, as the fulfiller of that Old Covenant and the giver of of the New Covenant, one way to read those laws is to read them as being perfectly fulfilled in Christ. That's just one way to read them. Another way to read them is depending on what kind of law it is, there's, there's always some theology behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that theology is going to inform us as to you know, what, what's God up to here and how is this connected to, how is this connected to Christ? Let me just give you one example. If you're reading through Leviticus, you'll, you'll come across uh, a lot of laws that uh, are related to being clean or unclean. So you have clean, unclean animals who have different kinds of clothes that might purify you or, or that might make you unclean. You have, mm-hmm. you know, you can't touch a, a carcass or you'll be unclean. A woman in her menstrual cycle is unclean. A man, if he has a seminal emission, is unclean. So all this talk about impurity, uncleanness, which on the one hand doesn't seem to have any applicability to our lives as Christians. But on the other hand, it actually it actually does. So here's how it works. All of these all of these levels of uncleanness prohibited a person from entering into the presence of God. They couldn't go and offer a sacrifice at the temple. They couldn't join in the celebration of the Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles or some other festival. So they needed to be cleansed of that impurity in order to enter into the presence presence of God. Well, you see first of all Jesus acting in his own ministry to take care of those situations of impurity. That's what happened with the, the woman who was hemorrhaging for, for 12 years. That's what happened mm-hmm. with the, the lepers. So Christ comes as the embodiment of the holiness of God. I like to think of him as a, as a walking, talking tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And what does he do? He actually goes to these people. He removes their impurity, and then he invites them to follow him, to be part of his community, and thus to be sanctified in him. Now, the, the way this applies to us is that what it's even in the liturgy, we talk about how I am sinful and unclean. It's, it's part of our confession as Christians that we are unclean mm-hmm. because our sins, our rebellions have, have made us that way. And so what do we need? Well, we need the same thing that the Old Testament believers needed. We needed God. We need God to provide cleansing for us in order that we might enter into his presence and thus receive his gracious sanctification. So what, what's going on in Leviticus with those, with those Torah laws, even though they don't have any kind of direct applicability to us, they at the same time do teach us about how God interacts with us, who we are as unclean sinners, and then how God provides a means of, of cleansing, atonement, purification and sanctification for us so rather than saying to someone you need to keep these torah laws as a follower of jesus the messiah we say no jesus the messiah has kept these torah laws for us and in reading them we also learn then how we are how god is and then how we can be purified by the the means that he's given to us in in his son so that's kind of a long answer, but and and that's just, of course, one particular way to to read these laws. But mm-hmm. that that's that's how I approach them. That's how I read Leviticus. That's how I read at least about the the ritual laws in, in Leviticus. There's always a there's always a theological and christological connection that we can make with those 
that relates directly to our life as followers of Christ. Wow, that's profound because, you know, it, again, I think you fall, we, we find people who've fallen into whatever camp is, you know, they, they're either to the extreme like the Torah Christians or, you know, to the complete opposite of that, being more antinomialism, and they just, you know, obedience and, and understanding the law kind of just goes out the window. And one of the things that I've been trying to take kind of a grasp of in my ministry is to find the balancing act of how can we read the, the Old Testament and how is that applicable to the Christian life today? And, and I think that helps nail it down. Uh, I want to jump to another Old Testament book, uh, a little bit of a wisdom literature, and I want to kind of get your take on it because uh, I did a, a small devotion on this book and uh, I want to see where, where where my thoughts line up with yours on the book of Proverbs. And I remember at one point in seminary, they were talking about how Proverbs is a is a book of instruction, but it's not a book of promise. And because it doesn't say that if you obey everything in here, that, you know, God will reward you. And so I'm, I'm curious if, if I remember that statement correctly, or, or really how can Christians look at a book like Proverbs, which is very heavy on, you know, uh, the lifestyle that a Christian should take, or, you know, first century or however old century Jew per, Jewish person. Yeah, uh, I guess the place to begin is to talk about what the overarching theme of Proverbs is. So um, you, they are correct that it is, it is a book of instruction, uh, but instruction about what? I mean, not 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 talking about the fine details about you know instruction regarding regarding relationships and finances and parent to child and and teacher to pupil. I'm not talking about those fine details. I'm just kind of the overarching theme of Proverbs. What is it? I would argue that it's wisdom, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's that's not a controversial statement. I think most uh, most people who read Proverbs and most Old Testament scholars of wisdom literature would say, yeah, of course, wisdom. That's why it's called wisdom literature, mm-hmm. because wisdom is the overarching theme. So, okay, we, we got that answer. Now we have to now we have to answer another question: What is wisdom? And maybe that's not even the right question. Instead of what is wisdom, maybe we should be asking, who is wisdom? Mm-hmm. And that's the direction that I go in in the Christ key. And it's by no means just me coming up with this. I'm building upon the work of a lot of other a lot of other Christian scholars. So why would we ask instead of what is wisdom, who is wisdom? Because repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, we see this especially in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified. That is, wisdom is treated as a person. Wisdom will have these long soliloquies where wisdom talks about this or that, uh, in particular talking about wisdom's place in in creation. That's what Proverbs 8 is all about. So if, if you're reading through that, wisdom will be talking about being there at the, the, the creation of all things, actually being there before the creation of all things. And there's some pretty astonishing statements in Proverbs 8 about how wisdom will say that the Lord brought me forth or begot me, that verb kana in Hebrew can be translated a couple different ways. The Lord brought me forth or begot me the beginning of his ways. So this this is wisdom speaking and saying, not only do I 
pre-exist everything in all creation, but the Lord begot me or brought me forth, which of course is, is it perfectly in keeping with exactly what we say in the creed about he, he was, that Christ was begotten, not made. Mm-hmm. And this gets even more interesting because, so if you go past Proverbs into the, what's usually called the intertestamental literature, uh, literature that's included in the, the Apocrypha, and you, you go to one of those books, it's called, by many names, Wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach, or sometimes just abbreviated to Sirach. If you go to Sirach, which also is wisdom literature, um, commonly read by Jews in the first couple of centuries before the birth of Christ. In, in, in Sirach, when he talks about wisdom, he describes wisdom as kind of having this conversation with God and saying, uh, I, I'm going everywhere. I'm looking for a place to settle. And the verb that's used there in Greek is to pitch my tent to tabernacle. And finally, God says to wisdom, why don't you pitch your tent or tabernacle in Israel. So this is God speaking to wisdom, who is personified. God saying, I want you to pitch your tent or tabernacle in Israel. Now, that is exactly the language, even in the Greek verbs that are used, exactly the language that is used in John chapter one. John is talking about not wisdom, but the word. Mm. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. You go to verse 14. And what does he say about the word? The word became flesh and did what? pitched his tent, tabernacled Mm. among us. So what John is doing is he is drawing upon the the wisdom traditions, which go all the way back to Proverbs, and then continue to exist in this Jewish intertestamental literature, such as in Sirach. And John, instead of using wisdom in in chapter one, he instead substitutes logos, he substitutes word. And what this wisdom literature said about wisdom, John then basically repeats, except he does a switch. He switches out wisdom for word. But they're both saying the same thing. In the, you could, for instance, you could you could simply take out word and insert wisdom in John 1 1, and it would be exactly the same. In the beginning was wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God. Mm. And you could jump down to verse 14, and wisdom became flesh and mm. dwelt among us. So going back then to Proverbs. Is it a book of instruction? To be sure it is. But it's also a book of Christology. It's a book about Jesus. Jesus as wisdom. Because wisdom is personified. Wisdom is the means by which God brought the world into being. So that, of course, is echoed by Paul multiple times when he talks about in Christ or through Christ or with Christ, all things came into being. Without him, nothing came into being. So what the wisdom literature does is basically... Yes, it gives a lot of very detailed instructions about how the, the, the fathers of Yahweh are to conduct themselves. But why do they do that? Because they are participants in wisdom, wisdom which isn't an abstract quality. It's not just some kind of intelligence. Wisdom is a person, and that person accords perfectly with who the second person of the Trinity is. So, as I have sometimes said, to read Proverbs without seeing Jesus would be like trying to read the Harry Potter series without seeing Harry Potter. He's, a, <laughs> he, he's the central character. Mm-hmm. He's the one that is behind all of the various discussions of wisdom that are there. Mm, that's amazing. I love that. And I'm glad I was <clears throat> kind of working through that same pattern of thought, but, uh, you know, really 
drawing out the fact that Christ is wisdom. But I, you know, the connection with John one is, is again, another profound thinking, um, because I have yet to get through my educational background with studying the languages. And one of my, I, I don't know if this is an ambitious uh, goal. One of them is to actually, you know, learn over time and understand Hebrew because I, f- I feel like that's a language that for many pastors is, is crucial to our understanding. And, and you just gave a wonderful demonstration of why that is. And so I'm going to kind of throw you maybe a curveball. Um, and, and I'm sure you'll be able to, to hit this one right out of the park, but I want to keep in the wisdom books, but I did a series on this show, uh, earlier this year, uh, where we went verse by verse through the book of song of Solomon. And in this, you know, book, I was reading through some of Luther's notes and I was, I, I, it was kind of interesting because Luther takes this approach that Solomon and, uh, in, in this woman that he's chasing after, um, that's a representation of God and government for man. And so I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of that particular book in itself and how, how do we, you know, as Christians look to that as a book that again, has pieces of wisdom, you know, in it and, and helping us to understand the poetry behind it, understand that Christ is, is still demonstrated in something like that book. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. Uh, that, that Luther comment, that's actually rather intriguing to me. Um, mm-hmm about uh, the the woman, the lover being represented representative of the of the government because uh, it, it's intriguing to me because the 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 vast amount of traditional Christian interpretation and Jewish interpretation as well are see this as a uh, a love song mm-hmm. about God and of course his bride, his community. Of course, if you're if you're a Jew, you understand the bride to be Israel. But as Christians, uh, there's there's all oh, there's been so many commentaries, so many sermon series throughout the centuries that are about the Song of Songs, all all of which understand this to be, call it what you want, an allegory, a parable uh, about this intense, passionate love between Christ and His Church, between Christ and Christ and His people. So that's the way that I read it. Uh, was it originally a love song about this relationship that, that Solomon had with, with this woman? Uh, possibly, I suppose. Uh, the Psalms had a lot of very specific historical uh, background that they arose out of, but that doesn't mean that that exhausts, of course, their meaning. Same mm-hmm. with the Song of Songs. So I read it as, uh, as the love song of, of God and, and his people. And... And the details, of course, are, are are colorful. The details are multifaceted, uh, but in one way or another, these details always point then to this this love affair, this mm-hmm. love affair that, that God has always had with with His people. So it's kind of the it's the Old Testament version of Ephesians five, if you will. Mm. Paul talks about Christ loving His bride and cleansing her and making her one one with Him. So. You can kind of trace this trajectory. You start with the first man and woman, the first love story, if you will. And that, that course, falls apart. And then what does God do? Well, he selects another man and woman, this time an old man and woman, Abraham and Sarah, who are kind of the next Adam and Eve. 
mm-hmm. to form the nucleus of this this new community and then that community grows into israel which becomes of course the the bride of yahweh now she cheats on him during their honeymoon at the foot of Mount Sinai by making the the golden calf. Mm-hmm. And so what do you have in the rest of the story? You have the rest of the story, God pursuing Israel, God chasing mm-hmm. after his, his wayward, his wayward bride. And that's why so often in the old Testament, you'll have the, the language of infidelity uh, attached to Israel because she is God's bride. But what does she do? Well, she keeps stepping out on him with Baal mm-hmm. or Asher or, or whoever it might be. So you go from that, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Israel, and then this finally comes full circle with the New Testament and the the community of God, which is enlarged and expanded when more and more Gentiles become part of part of this bride. So anyway, long answer to your question. Yes, Song <laughs> of Songs, I see to be a uh, an allegory or a parable about the relationship between Christ and his bride. Yeah, that was the direction I took, because, you know, I'd, I'd seen kind of how there were different views and interpretations or understandings to this book. And I think it's one of those, uh, basically, the, the series that I'm doing is least talked about books uh, of the Bible from a pastoral standpoint. Like, you won't hear pastors quoting Song of Solomon too often. No, and, no, <laughs> and you probably won't hear them teach on it. And so I thought it was helpful to to go in and uh, to really dig into kind of the overlay of this book and, and understand some of the premises behind it. And you know, so I, I have uh, the Luther's works uh, set on my Logos Bible software, and I think it's volume 15 that has him on Song of Solomon. And yeah, it was just really interested at at how he uh takes you know the a different approach to it because like here i'm just looking at just a quick note on verse two uh where it says he kisses me this is what luther says he speaks according to the custom of the people of the day among us kisses are held in less esteem however kisses are signs of love and favor and so he says the lord kisses me that is he shows favor to the government he kisses it, he honors it with all manner of blessings and love. And then he kind of continues that theme throughout his lectures on Song of Solomon. So, I, you know, I was just curious how that kind of plays out with more traditional thoughts. Uh, yeah, it's a, it definitely uh, uh, doesn't accord with the, the vast majority of, uh, mm-hmm. of Christian interpretation of it. Uh, who knows? I don't, I don't know about the background of when Luther wrote that, but maybe he was dealing with some governmental issues. And so <laughs> yeah. he, he decided to take advantage of the opportunity yeah. to uh, use that commentary to uh, shed some light on the uh, the two kingdoms or something like that. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. Um, I don't really have any sort of information on the date of the writing, but yeah, I'll have to dig into that a little bit more down the road. But uh, so we've got uh, some minutes left uh, and I can, you know, like I talked to you before the show, I want to be respectful of your time. And and as much as I can throw, you know, curveballs at you from the Old Testament and and drawing us that I think we've done a pretty good beginning job to demonstrating Christ throughout. Um, I have two. I have one question left on the old testament that i want to ask you and then i want to look at another book that you're writing uh, the question is this uh 
I did a series on this show um, from 2019 through 2021, and it was on eschatology. And the approach was to demonstrate the four major views, show what scripture uh, the people who are in these camps uh, would turn to to have their proof, if you would. Um, but then I t- decided to go through the entire Bible and look at things that would be eschatological in framework. And one of the things that I discovered going through this was in the Old Testament, how uh, the Jewish people, or really even before Israel, if we look at Genesis, um, the people weren't necessarily focused on the end of the world, but the end of something in their immediate time period, you know, like the flood and so on. And so I'm curious how uh, Christians can read through some of those tougher, you know, literatures, especially getting into like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and so on and so forth. Like, how can we interpret that? Or is that all just interconnected again with what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25 and what Paul writes about in his letters, obviously the John and Revelation, are they just pieces of a bigger puzzle yeah they, they're certainly interconnected what, what what you see is early on for instance destruction of sodom and gomorrah mm-hmm. or the, especially the flood itself those two events in particular become paradigmatic of what the end will be like so they are uh, little apocalypses if you will little mm-hmm. ends of the world especially the flood because the world what happens in the flood is the world is basically rewound to Genesis chapter one, verse two, where what do you have? Water, water everywhere. That's mm-hmm. all you got. So what God does in the flood is he basically uncreates, if you will, or takes creation all the way back to the opening. And then what do you have when it's over? Well, you have now a new Adam and Eve. You have the family of Noah stepping forth while they're surrounded by all these animals into a, a purged world. So the end of the flood story is like the beginning of the, the new creation. And then what you see happening in the, in the rest of the Old Testament is those stories themselves are sometimes alluded to. Isaiah, for instance, alludes to the days of, of Noah and builds upon those paradigms to talk about the coming end, which is known by various by various uh, phrases in the Old Testament, you know, coming days or the end or what whatever the language, whatever the language is used, the day of the Lord is another common phrase. Mm-hmm. All of those days find their fulfillment in, in, in kind of a, uh, it's a both and fashion. So in, in one way, the end of the world and judgment and resurrection and everything else happen with the death and resurrection of Jesus happen in this sense. He is representative of all humanity. So when he dies on the cross, when he faces that judgment, that is the final judgment. And then when he is resurrected, that is the final resurrection. Now, of course, there is still a judgment and still a resurrection to come, but that is entirely based upon where one stands in connection with what Christ accomplished. So if I am in Jesus, then I have already been co-crucified, co-buried, and co-resurrected with him. And so on the last day, there will be no surprise. I already know what's going to happen. I'll be with him. Mm-hmm. But those who reject him, they have already, as it were, they been prejudged to be outside him. So it all depends upon what one's connection is to him. Mm. Um, now, what what 
what's happening when the New Testament talks about the end day, the, the last days or the final day, it will both draw upon what happened to Christ and then it will also talk about what is coming at the at the true end when one's connection to Jesus will be revealed. Either you're with him or you're or you're against him. Mm. I don't feel like I've answered that question quite <laughs> with, 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 with great clarity, but it is it is kind of complicated because mm-hmm. you've got so much happening in the Old Testament uh, with regard to the last day that is fulfilled in the New Testament, but it's sort of a both end. It's fulfilled, but it's not quite completely fulfilled because we have to wait until the final day for for that to to take place. Yeah, and and I that was that was really my uh, my approach working through that series because I spent uh, an exorbitant amount of time digging through the Old Testament and looking at these particular passages and reading them in light of what the New Testament is. And I think somebody I forget I'm sure other theologians would agree with this, but I don't know who the quote originally comes from, but that the uh, the Jewish culture, the Jewish Pharisees struggled to understand the book of Ezekiel, for instance. And, but now that we have the book of revelation, Christian theologians can turn back and say, Ezekiel makes perfect sense now because outside of itself, if just left by itself, it, it has no connecting pieces itself that, you know, they would attribute to other pieces of scripture or anything that would be, you know, given to us by another prophet or, you know, talked about by Jesus, for instance, but we see the the kind of fulfillment of that when we get to the Book of Revelation. Yeah, I'd, and I would, I would I'd absolutely agree. This is this is a part of the ongoing revelation mm-hmm. that you see actually throughout Scripture. I mean, there's there are later books in the Old Testament that that provide greater clarity as to what earlier books of the of the Old Testament mean and. So what the New Testament is doing is simply continuing this long process of God through apostles, through prophets, bringing greater and greater clarity. Mm-hmm. So just like the Psalms help us to understand better Genesis and Isaiah helps us to understand better the Exodus. So also then John and Revelation helps us to better understand Ezekiel and Daniel and parts of Isaiah as mm-hmm. well. So this is a it's not like we have to wait for the New Testament. For mm-hmm. books finally to provide greater clarity that that clarifying aspect of ongoing revelation is continuing in the old testament itself as layer upon layer of biblical books are are added wonderful so now we'll jump out of scripture i want to ask you um to maybe if you would plug your new book um because i have it pre-ordered i'm anxiously waiting for it to come and uh and I've and I'm really I think personally have a deep connection with this topic uh, because it was one that really kind of helped drive a lot of my final projects in one of uh, Stephen Paulson's classes, and that's around Jacob and Jacob wrestling with God. So if you could uh, give us maybe a little sneak peek or a little bit of uh, uh, insider information, if you would, on this upcoming book. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'm a uh, I'm actually holding in my hands a uh-huh. copy now. Nice. Uh, just yesterday, the uh, the copy, physical copy, arrived. So it's always nice to actually hold in my hand the the finished product. The book itself will be out in will be released in July. So we're kind of at the pre order order stage now. You can 
find it at the the store at 1570.org of course you can order it on amazon it's kindle paperback hardcover and uh, even though it's not listed yet there will also be an audio version read by by myself so Ooh. however you like your books listen to them read them on your kindle read them in the the old-fashioned paper form we mm -hmm. we got you covered Nice. So the, the title is Limping with God. The subtitle is Jacob and the Old Testament Guide to Messy Discipleship. Mm. Uh, so the title itself, Limping with God, uh, is, is taken, of course, from the, the scene after he wrestles with, with God. And during that wrestling match, God touches his, his hip, and we're told that he is gimping away, limping away from that particular battle with God. And for me, that becomes iconic of not just his life, but the life of all of those, all of us who are disciples. And that's why I called it an Old Testament guide to messy discipleship. That's why I have the discipleship in there, because Jacob was a follower and we, too, are followers of the Lord. Mm -hmm. But the word messy is in there, like the word limping is in there, because any anybody who knows anything about Jacob's life mm -hmm. realizes what a royal mess he was. Mm -hmm. um, he is, uh, in fact, I was in the in my next book, which I'm working on now. I just finished a chapter that talked a little bit about him, and and I was describing how you know he's he uh, he's fascinating to be sure, but he's also an extremely frustrating character because he has so many of these character character flaws. He he's just lies through his teeth to his father uses God's name in vain when he says the, the Lord provided me with the game so quickly that I can bring to you, Father. So he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a backstabber. Uh, and there's a lot more bad things that I could say, <laughs> I could say about him. <laughs> but the reason that's so appropriate is because he is a mirror then of our soul. He's a mirror mm -hmm. of everything that we are. Now, maybe not all his character traits are so prominent in our lives, but we're all liars. We're all backstabbers. Uh, we're all out looking out for number one. We all have that same selfish ambition that, that Jacob exhibited, especially in his earlier years. We all, in one way or another, have messed up our families, even if it's in some minor way, maybe some of us major ways. And Jacob does that repeatedly. So what we see in him is uh, a lot of failures, uh, a lot of flaws, but... God, nevertheless, calls him, chooses him, loves him, blesses him, forgives him, and uses all of this, you know, the, these these problems in his life and in his families. God somehow is able to use all of that to further the story of salvation, to carry that along, to bring, you know, good good out of evil. We, of course, we see that especially in regard to Jacob's sons. Joseph he uses to save not only the people of Egypt, but Jacob's family, as well as several other lands affected by the drought. And then, of course, Judah. Uh, he becomes the one patriarch to whom the promise of the seed, the Messianic seed, is given. And it's from Judah's line that the Messiah is to come. And whose son is Judah? Well, it's not Joseph and his beloved Rachel, but it's, I mean, Jacob and his beloved Rachel, but it's Jacob and his not so beloved, Leah, their union brings Judah. So in other words, there's just a whole lot about his story that we can identify with uh, as, as disciples. And then we can also see how God used him and his family 
just so, in the same way that he continues to use us despite all of our flaws and 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 weaknesses and regrets in life as well awesome i really am looking forward to this book because like i said i uh, this particular passage in genesis 32 was really uh it, it really was intriguing to me when we were going through uh, genesis with dr paulson and i was just like i i it didn't take it, there was really no time for me to have to sit and say is this really christ the pre-incarnation wrestling with jacob and when i you know firmly and fully embraced that view it like opened up so much of the text because then you start to you know as we've talked about on the last uh, you know for this last hours you see christ throughout everything and and i really like how you have this structured where we are all like Jacob in some fashion. We all do these things, and how can we utilize that in a today's culture? I think that's uh, going to be, you know, phenomenal. Again, another instrument to the Christians to be able to look back and see that we come from a long line of imperfection, and we all need a Savior to cleanse us of that. Yeah, so, that's that's well that's well said, and and for that reason, I'm I'm very excited to to get this out there, just to uh, to be an encouragement to people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a uh, how to be a you know a superior disciple of Jesus. It's mm -hmm. Not, that, not mm -hmm. that kind of book. Instead, it's you know how as a, a a completely sinful person who has no hope inside ourselves, how can we be disciples of Jesus? Well, we're disciples of Jesus because He Himself calls us and He carries us uh in order that we might follow along with him mm. yeah and that's going to be actually interestingly enough i'm going to take a break uh from preaching in the old testament per se i'm not going to stop preaching the old testament but um i'm going to conclude my time with moses here at the end of may and then i'm going to turn my attention to uh understanding the call of a christian in today's world and one of those aspects would be doing something similar to what this book is laying out and how can we uh, be you know messy disciples you know how can we embrace the fact that we're still sinner but yet we are justified in our sinful state and so i'm gonna you know dig into like some of the creeds and confessions and you know what is it what does it mean to be a christian today and so i'm really looking forward to that and your book because that'll be you know another uh, piece of the pie to add to my uh to my library and in my mental library of understanding the scriptures and uh so last question and again this is not uh i don't think i ever really prepped you on this one but i, I just it came to me as we were kind of going through today's conversation so you work with 1517. You told me you attend a Missouri Senate Lutheran church. Have you always been a Lutheran or are you a convert from another Protestant understanding? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a convert. I wasn't a cradle Lutheran. I uh, was, was raised in a Southern Baptist congregation. Um, we were a very, very devout family. We were in church. Uh, we weren't just kind of nominally Baptist. We were in church, uh, twice a twice a Sunday and often on Wednesdays were uh, we're always involved in one way or another. So I was raised in a uh, and in an environment that, uh, you know, to, to to take out the positive from that uh, in a church environment that really accented the 
the importance of knowing the scriptures. I mean, I could, of course, could I could give give some theological criticisms of uh, of what I uh, no longer accept. But again, to, to think positively, one thing that I drew from my upbringing was just how important it was to to read, to study, to know to know the scriptures. And I, I honestly, I think that's probably one of the reasons I ended up not becoming an apologist, not becoming a, a systematic theologian, not becoming a uh, historical theologian, but I'm trained as a as an exegete, uh, that is a an interpreter and and teacher of the scriptures. Uh, I think probably part of the reason I ended up going that route is because of my background in a, a scripturally saturated denomination such as the the Southern Baptist. So what happened with me is I was I was befriended by by someone who was a Lutheran when I was in my late teens, and he. Uh, steadfastly challenged me uh, to to prove from scripture some of the things that I believed. And so that actually drove me to to more intense study and to reflection upon our various theological differences. And then over a course of probably two or three years, uh, I took kind of baby steps toward the embracing of various aspects of, of Lutheran theology until I was ready to actually embrace that wholeheartedly. And uh, I've remained a of course, a Lutheran to to this day. Uh, so I give thanks to God for that background that I had in in Southern Baptist Church with its uh, with its scriptural focus. And then I give thanks to God, of course, also for for where I am now and for especially our gospel centeredness and how we always keep Christ and His His grace front and center. It's mm, a beautiful story, and uh, I I can I can relate to that because. In some aspects, you know, my parents didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I, you know, I, I rarely went to church as a child. Uh, it, we were, we'd be the Creasters Christmas and Easter. And when I was in my, my uh, I don't know, sixth grade, my mom wanted me to be confirmed. So in the small town that we grew up in, there were a town of 500 people, three Lutheran churches. <laughs> Sounds familiar, except in Texas it would be three Baptist churches, but yeah. Three yeah. Baptist, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, one was the Missouri Senate, uh, the other two were ELCA, but they had differences because uh, the founding people had disagreements uh, that weren't theological, they were just personal disagreements. And so they built one church on one side of the railroad tracks and another church on the other side of the railroad tracks. And... <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uh, it's what you get with German settlements. So, yeah. But uh, so I got conf- I got confirmed, and I did the youth stuff with the Lutheran Church. But I never really, at the time, could really even articulate who Christ was. And you know, I just I just knew that he was the Savior. You know, he was Lord. He was God. I, he was the very very basics. And it was in my uh, mid twenties when my wife was like, "Hey, let's you know." Try, we'd moved to Chicago by this time. And she's like, let's go try this church that's opening up down the road. I said, sure. And and at this time, we'd been away from the church. We both worked weekends. So I haven't attended church in probably 15 or well, no, probably eight years. And my wife, every time we went back to her family's house, we'd go to church because she grew up in the Lutheran church. She grew up going every Sunday and any other events that would be coming up throughout the year she would attend. And so we started going to this church. It was non-denominational. And so I got really saturated with really a Calvinistic uh, understanding of the scripture. And my goal was to go into 
you know, being a, a reformed preacher or a Calvinistic preacher, non-denominational kind of structure. And I started with Sioux Falls Seminary in 2019. And within probably the first three or four weeks, my first class on the Reformation was, uh, you know, taking us through the life of Luther. And it, it was just, you know, gut punch after gut punch of just, I, I can't, I, I can't, uh, demonstrate my, you know, support for the knowledge that I had in my backpack, my theological backpack. And so it was a lot of unpacking. And mm. by the time I got to the confessions class, I, you know, I'd at that point, um, which was last year, I'd f- like fully embraced confessional Lutheranism, like at its core, like what did Luther teach and how should we understand that in today's culture? And so uh, you know, I, I have to make a, a a mark because when people think of Lutherans, they think of ELCA and they think of, you know, this really radical liberal theology that's being taken place here in the United States and around the world. And I have to preference that and say, I'm not a part of that. I'm not affiliated with that. We don't agree with that. You know, this is my biblical position is is to read the scriptures through the eyes of of Luther, but more importantly, as a theologian of the cross. And more importantly, to see that, you know, the, the love of Christ is cascaded all throughout scripture. And so for me, it's been an interesting journey, but I can, you know, and I love watching other people, you know, kind of cross that boundary from like a reformed or, you know, another denomination to the Lutheran faith. And because the conversations we had then are just profound, whether it's the Lord's supper or baptism or understanding faith and understanding obedience, understanding sanctification and justification. Like those are topics that are just, uh, you know, well in in front and center in my life and and on my heart. So Chad, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I want to turn it back over to you. If you just have, if you have anything that you want to plug or anything that you want to point people to resources or anything like that, uh, I'll let you uh, do go ahead with that. Yeah, well, well, thank you. First of all, thank you, Alex, for telling me uh, that part of your story. I, I love to hear how the Lord works differently in, in different people's lives to, to bring them to where he wants them to be. So mm-hmm. I'm grateful that, grateful that, he has, uh, that he has done that for you and mm-hmm. grateful, to be, grateful to be part of the, uh, of the podcast as well. I, I love talking about these subjects, so <laughs> hopefully all those, who, all those who listen will, uh, will enjoy it as well and uh, will gain some some new insights new insights and understanding. I would uh, as far as like promoting anything or plugging anything, I would simply repeat what I said earlier to um, if if people are interested in a lot of different resources, almost all of which interestingly are free, then mm-hmm. go to 1517.org, daily articles, uh, just about any podcast that that might interest you whether you're into the Bible or apologetics or family or uh, the more kind of intellectual discussion of theology. We've got podcasts for all of that. So uh, check all of that out and uh, see what might be of, of use to you or if you're a leader in your church of use to your to your congregation. So that's it. And thanks. Thanks again for, for having me on. Uh, really appreciate the time, the conversation. Yeah, it's been an honor and I'm very blessed with this conversation, I think. Uh, and I've had some people that I've been chatting with that are very excited to hear uh, what we will talk about on this show. And so uh, I'm going to try and 
get it rushed to production and hopefully have it drop within the next uh, two weeks. It's my goal. Uh, but Chad, thanks again for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I look forward to uh, hopefully having you on in the future and uh, unpacking some of you know the, the other insights that you are calling upon and other books that you are writing. And uh, so I'm yeah, very thankful. Great, I'd, I'd welcome the opportunity. Wonderful. So, well, again, thanks, uh, Chad, and thank you everybody for tuning in for this episode. We will see you back uh, on Friday for our next show in uh, the series that we'll be working on it whenever that will air. So, take care. Have a great week, and God bless. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.